0: My name is Becky Sanders. I'm the program director for the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center, a program of the Indiana Rural Health Association. And today I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series entitled A Virtual View. For our first episode, we'll be defining the term telehealth and describing how telehealth is access. The Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center is a federally funded program under the Health Resources and Services Administration. We are a regional telehealth resource center covering the states of Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. Along with 11 other regional telehealth resource centers, we cover the United States. There are also two national telehealth resource centers, the Center for Connected Health Policy, which is our policy resource center, and TTAC, the Technology Resource Center. Together, all 14 of us are known as the National Consortium of Telehealth Resource Centers. We have a joint website where we host monthly webinars and you can find an interactive map to connect you to any of the 14 of us. Here at the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center or the UMTRC as we call ourselves, we consider ourselves virtual librarians. Even before COVID, most of the work that we do for technical assistance, which is what we call when folks come to us and ask us questions via email or on the phone, or when we see them out and about and networking at, at conferences and programs, we get these requests for technical assistance. And many times what we send back or share with folks is resources on our website that we have already created or links to existing resources on other organizations' websites. We also do uh, a lot of connecting people with other programs. There's no sense reinventing the wheel if you want to start a NICU program and there's another program that's been successful. We like to connect those programs to talk about best practices. Here at the UMTRC, we also like to stay up to date on reimbursement policies and legislative developments within our region. So we have a lot of resources on our website about reimbursement. When we talk about telehealth, it is really important to talk about broadband or access to internet services. If you're going to build a telehealth program, it's like building a house. You've got to have a strong foundation. If you build a program on sand or build a house on sand, it's going to dissolve over time. So broadband recommendations for telehealth programs range depending on the size of your physician practice. For example, a single physician practice, you might want to have four megabits per second of internet access, ranging up to a hospital where you might need 100 megabits per second of internet access. When it comes to funding a telehealth program, there are certain opportunities available or certain programs available through the federal government. One is the United States Department of Agriculture. They have what's called a USDA Community Facilities Program, and that is for communities with no more than 20,000 residents. Another program from the USDA is the Distance Learning and Telemedicine Program, or the DLT Program, and this funds capital assets. Many times we get asked by healthcare providers if there's a way to make their own broadband internet access more affordable. And the Federal Communications Commission has a couple of programs around that. There's the Rural Healthcare Program, and underneath of that program, there are two other programs, the Telecommunications Program and the Healthcare Connect Fund Program. More information on those programs can be found at usac.org backslash rural healthcare. Now, when it comes to an individual One of the biggest changes that we've seen in the last eight months or so with the coronavirus, COVID-19, the global pandemic and the public health emergencies out of HHS here in the United States is that individuals at home often don't have adequate broadband access. So there are a couple of programs underneath the auspices of the federal communications commission that can help with that. One is called the Lifeline Program, and any individual who receives public assistance like SNAP or Medicaid or even Social Security can get access to the Lifeline Program. In that program, they can get reduced phone service for their home for a landline telephone, or reduced cost on a mobile telephone or a cellular telephone, or reduced cost on high-speed broadband access at their house. So these programs are available to help those that might live in rural areas where broadband access is more expensive or difficult to afford. Before I go any farther, I'd like to discuss some terminology. I've used the words telehealth and telemedicine. And if you go to a dictionary, you'll find telehealth as a broader field of distance health activities, um, clinical remote monitoring, education, those types of things. And telemedicine is defined as a billable, interactive, clinical service between a patient and provider when they are at a distance from each other. You might also hear terms like e-health or m-health. And during the public health emergency of COVID-19, the terms video visit and virtual care or virtual visit have become very popular. Prior to COVID-19, we here at the UMTRC kind of felt like we were this little rowboat in the middle of Lake Michigan. And then along comes COVID and the global pandemic. Now with all of the interest in telehealth and virtual care, it feels like we're driving this huge cruise ship on the middle of Lake Michigan, and we don't have enough berths for everyone that wants to come along for the cruise. One thing I always like to talk about and stress is that telehealth is a delivery modality. Regardless if we call it telehealth or telemedicine or virtual care or virtual visits, we're using technology to deliver the same clinical care as a provider would when the patient is there with them in person. This is also known as synchronous telehealth or live and interactive telehealth. So if you're old enough to know what a walkie-talkie is, synchronous telehealth is uh, that live and interactive interaction on a video conferencing platform where either person, either end, can speak at the same time. With telehealth, we want that to be a HIPAA compliant platform. Having a HIPAA compliant platform ensures that the patient health information is secure. There is also asynchronous telehealth, and that is also known as store-and-forward telemedicine. And that describes, again, in the walkie-talkie example, that describes a one-way conversation, so on a a one-way walkie-talkie. And and store-and-forward telemedicine isn't reimbursed as widely as live and interactive telemedicine but it is used for wound care or dermatology. Those are great examples when pictures or images are captured and then sent from the patient's location where they're gathered to the provider's location for analysis. This also needs to be on a HIPAA compliant connection a secure connection. So as we're talking about telehealth, there's a lot of different services that can be offered via telehealth. And they fall into four basic categories. Hospitals and specialties, for example, telestroke, telecardiology, tele-ICU, where patients are being managed remotely. And then there's integrated care. We see this often with accountable care organizations or primary care medical homes where Specialists, behavioral health specialists in this case, are seeing patients remotely when they're in a primary care setting. One of the other areas of telehealth that we have seen a lot of movement in recently is transitions and monitoring. And this covers chronic care management and remote patient monitoring. These are programs that are designed to keep patients healthy at home and to reduce readmissions to the hospital for the same diagnosis or DRG. A couple of ways that this can be done is using technology to gather vitals from patients, things like blood pressure, pulse, blood sugar levels, weight. Using technology like a voice response system or Bluetooth, enabled devices, or even a patient writing down their blood sugars on a piece of paper and calling it in over the telephone to a care coordinator. This information helps the patients to report how they're doing between visits. Other examples of how transitions and monitoring could work would be uh, the use of a community paramedicine program. Oftentimes, these types of programs are staffed by paramedics or other professionals, and they could be from a fire department or from an ambulance service. Generally, they have a contract with a hospital or a primary care organization to do home checks, uh, visits with people who might otherwise be frequent flyers to the emergency room. One example that I love to share about community paramedicine is the example of a person who has asthma. And this person is frequently seen in the ER. They come in, they're having trouble breathing, they get stabilized, maybe they stay 24 hours for observation, and they get sent home. And then they're back again in two or three days. So by breaking that cycle and sending a community paramedicine program or personnel out to the home to do a home visit, maybe they find out that that person has a dozen cats or has mold in their house or um, asbestos or lead or you know something else. That is something that a clinician would never notice when the patient is there in the sterile hospital or clinic environment. The final area of telehealth that I wanna talk about is primary care in schools, where the kiddos get to stay in school. The parents and guardians don't have to leave work to take the kiddo from school to take them to a primary care appointment. In this situation, a kiddo that is experiencing a earache can go to the school nurse and get uh, a telehealth visit the provider can see them. The provider might be a physician or a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner, but they can see inside the patient's ear using digital otoscopes. They can hear heart and lung sounds using digital stethoscopes and determine does the kid have an ear infection? Do they need antibiotics? and then those antibiotics can be ordered while the patient is still at school, while the kiddo is still at school. In many instances, the local pharmacy can get the medicine to the kiddo at school, and they can have that first dose of antibiotics on board before they go home. This saves the kiddo from missing school. This saves the parent or guardian from having to miss work and possibly lose revenue for their household and it means that the kiddo is not gonna have to wait until an eardrum bursts and end up in the ER. Their health problems are taken care of in a more timely manner. Now, I realize this is gonna take 10 years to see the true outcomes of school telemedicine programs or school telehealth programs, but I think what we'll find is that there are better clinical outcomes and more use of preventative care visits in primary care. As we start to wrap up for today, I do want to talk a little bit about policy barriers. Prior to COVID-19, there were many programs, many physician offices and healthcare organizations that had not started telehealth programs. And that may have been because of the very real and large barrier of policy. Policy equals reimbursement. Providers want to keep their patients healthy. And one way to do that is to keep them at home and do more primary care visits. But there were policy barriers. Medicare, for example, would only allow a provider to bill for a telemedicine visit with a Medicare beneficiary if that beneficiary was at a specific eligible originating site. That site could be a critical access hospital, a rural health clinic, a federally qualified health center and others, but the patient could not be at home. With the advent of COVID-19 and all of the stay at home orders that we had across the United States in March and April, Medicare issued uh, public health emergencies and waivers through Medicare to allow those patients to see their physicians while the patient was at home. And this broke down so many barriers. It really brought policy for telemedicine reimbursement forward 20 years overnight. We also saw the same thing happen for Medicaid beneficiaries, where state Medicaid programs allowed patients to be at home instead of at a clinical site to be seen by their providers using audiovisual or that two-way interactive telemedicine. Some seniors and some Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries had issues with their broadband access or didn't have smartphones. So CMS did issue some audio-only codes early on in the public health emergency for COVID-19. And those exist today. Right now, as we're recording this, we're at the end of November, 2020, and the public health emergency at the federal level has been extended into January of 2021. So at least through then, those audio-only codes will be available. But we're in an era now where the policy barriers for adopting telehealth have gone down. And it'll be interesting to see in a couple of years how this has changed fundamentally the way healthcare is accessed in the United States. I think we're going to see a lot of long-term effects from the pandemic that we have been experiencing these last six to eight months. I wanna thank you for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Becky Sanders. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have a topic you'd like us to discuss? If so, leave us a review with your idea or contact us at info at Also, I'd like to give a special thanks to Josh Rodriguez and Francis Fitzgerald for scoring our podcast. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank our editor, Caroline Yoder, has been the brains behind making this idea of mine come to fruition. I couldn't have done it without her. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy and the Office for Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Becky Sanders as the program director of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy or position of nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.